From 11FS, I'm Simon Taylor, and this is Fintech Insider News. Today we bring you gambling blockers aren't a gimmick, robo-advice for a price, and debt collectors in dress suits. All this and much more on today's Fintech Insider News. Welcome to this week's episode of Fintech Insider News. My name's Simon Taylor, and I'm joined by my colleague and co-host, Ross Gallagher. How are you, Gah? I'm so good. Another awesome week at 11FS, and now it's recording day. So I... Recording day, the weird perk of the job. Yeah, no, no complaints. And we are coming to you live from the 11FS office in WeWork, Oldgate, London, England. Don't forget, if you have any questions for us, drop us an email, podcasts at 11FS.com, or just find us on social media or somewhere near Oldgate. You know, just, just come find us. And we're not alone. We're joined by some fantastic guests. Uh, of course, we have uh, Bill Guider, who is the head of global strategic partnerships at Visa. Bill, how the heck are you? Doing good today. Glad to have you on board. And returning is Dr. Sean Lewin, the reg tech doctor herself. How are you? I'm great. Thank you for having me back. Thank you so much for being back. Um, we need some reg tech doctoring up in here. Before we get into this week's news, we actually... We have some news of our own. Let's hear from our CEO, David Breer, to tell us more. Thanks, Simon. Um, Yeah, so we are the news again this week, which is kind of fun. So uh, we've started something called 11FS Foundry, and really we've done this to solve our own problem, if I'm honest with you. We've been doing this because um, having been working with uh, many big global organizations around the world to start greenfield banks, then we were just sort of a little bit bored of having the same conversation around technology and and really sort of the, the, the realization that actually many people's aspirations around what it is that they want to do is nowhere near meeting up with what their technological capability actually is. So for us, 11FS Foundry is about building out a full stack. This is truly digital all the way down, core banking and architecture that will be running in the cloud as SaaS. Um, for us, it's because we've really seen various people in the market do things, um, but we haven't really seen them to do it with either the right approach that, as we believe it from a technological perspective, or really with the right partners to ensure that they're getting the valid approach being put into the market at scale. So for us, um, you know, the key thing not only is this about 11FS doing 11FS Foundry, um, but this is about the partnership that we're announcing with DMB. In DMB, um, from all of the, the people over the, the course of 11FS's life, we've never really found somebody more culturally aligned to, to how we work and really the direction that we see financial services moving in uh, and the aspirations to, to go and make that happen. Um, so for us, this announcement is as important about the partnership that we have in place with DMB as it is the fact that we're kind of brave enough to to step into this market with some some absolute giants. So, you know, for us, uh, what we want to see 11FS uh, Foundry be is really as, as disruptive to core banking and, and system architecture as AWS was to data centers. And we feel that with the team that we've got in place, people like Ewan Silver, who, you know, ex-CTO of Nutmeg and Betfair and all of these places, you know, with the leadership of Elite Eglyptus to, to go and make 11FS Foundry something truly disruptive to the, to the nature of what the industry actually is that we're really passionate about. Um, it's a great start to something um, and um, definitely we'll be coming back to you guys with more news as it happens. Thank you very much, Mr. Bria. Watch this space for more details in those coming weeks. First story is um, 
gambling blockers aren't just a gimmick. Uh, this one comes from BBC News and uh, a it says gambling a banking app helped me beat my addiction um so both monzo and starling's gambling blockers have gained praise in the bbc for helping addicts addicts kick the habit more than 25,000 customers have signed up to monzo's block since it went live in june um not all of those were problem gamblers but about 8,000 people did have a history of gambling said the ceo tom blomfeld Apparently, they've seen a 70% decline in their gambling transactions. So it's made a really, really big impact. Um, And when you look at some of the facts on gambling addiction in the UK, 430,000 people uh, have uh, declared gambling addiction. There are 2 million people at risk. And harm can include higher levels of physical and mental illness, debt problems, uh, relationship breakdown, and in some cases, criminality. So this has really made a difference. But what stood out to me is this is big old mainstream media. Any thoughts on this one? Yeah, I mean, it is big old mainstream media, and rightly so. I mean, this one, I remember, gained some real traction on Twitter when it came out initially, and I think that's because, again, it humanizes it. Um, when it gets announced as a, a piece of functionality, people kind of go, all right, okay, that's interesting. But when you boil it down to the human story, it's really interesting. And when you start to think about, the article talks about Danny from Stockport, his his issues around this started to rely on overtime at work, then payday loans, and it escalated from there. And the sort of stress and the impact that has on your mental health is is, is huge. Yeah, but I also think it points to how different these fintechs think about the customer experience and how quickly they get to these solutions. You know, they're they're always looking for changes in consumer attitudes, kind of where are people heading in terms of how they think about financial services, and they can respond so quickly. So it's no surprise to me, you know, that it's Monzo and, and Starling, right? I think this is also right just bringing the reg angle in um, is right up the FCA's alley with their focus on vulnerable customers and actually um, in the article it mentions that they have somebody responsible for vulnerable customers and, and development around that which I think is is great and is actually a really great example for some of the incumbent institutions. Let's hear from um, Simon Vance Kalina, an engineer at Monzo who talked about this back in episode 218 when this first launched. Um, and uh, you can go to episode 218 to hear the full context, but we're just going to play a snippet now and then come back in. We have Monzo time, which is um, it's a fairly regular thing where engineers can stop and just work on something that they're passionate about. And uh, my friend James built it uh, or started the process. He built it with a bunch of other people. And James is like literally one of the most compassionate people I've ever met. And he didn't just build it. He really thought about like how gambling affects people. And like we see that people contact us in, in financial difficulties or they ask, they, they contact us and they ask to um, be blocked from making gambling transactions. And the data's there. It's been on the, like the feed that you get from the card networks tells you whether it's a gambling company or not. So it's a very simple thing for us to build to just have a button. Um, but he talked to our head of financial difficulties and to, um, you know, the, our design team and, and to people with, throughout Monzo and everybody was like, like, let's do it properly. Let's think about the psychology of it. Let's think about adding friction in the right way about like giving people positive nudges and helping them to get out of trouble. And it really, it, um, it reinforces like Monzo's social mission to be like a force for good as well. And, uh, yesterday in the team meeting, Wednesday, was, whenever this goes out on Wednesday, our team meeting was, he, he presented it and went through the entire flow and, Man, like he basically got a standing ovation. People were like chat, like clapping and cheering. It's like it's so Monzo. It's perfect, and it's a beautiful experience as well. It's non-judgmental. It's just so you tick a box and it says if you if you go through this process, then to re-enable gambling transactions, you'll have to contact us. And like it's it has the right level of friction and a forty-eight hour cool-down process. And um, we didn't just like make it easy. We made it like just we made it the right level of difficult to re-enable. 
And I think it's a better experience than just like uninstalling, you know, whatever gambling app from your phone in there. But if you do contact our customer service people, they're like fully trained to help direct people in the right direction. Like we, in Monzo, we have a team called Vulnerable Customers. And the vulnerable customers team deal with this stuff all day, every day. And they're really good at directing people to the right, the right place. And with, with, you know, we have 650,000 customers now. So like, it's not like occasionally somebody comes to us with a, with, a, with these types of problems. It's like every single day there is people who are in these situations who come to us. And so we're really good at, at directing people and helping them get out of, get out of strife, frankly. So there's, there's a couple of things in that for me. I think, um, one's around culture. I think there's an awful lot of, of really intelligent, clever, enthusiastic people in big banks who want to do awesome things, but are hamstrung by whether it's legal, whether it's compliance. So the fact that they've taken that Google approach of giving workers some of their time back to work on something that impassions them, I think that's quite cool. And I love what they say about the 48-hour cool-off period, because it's not then about the customer relinquishing control it's not like being sectioned if you want to turn it back on you can turn it back on but to avoid putting a bet on in the heat of the moment they've got that 48 hour cool off period which i quite like yeah and i think it's the other thing i would say is that it's clearly not just a marketing ploy but it is great for rehabilitating you know the image of banks um with consumers in the uk and the fact that this is coming from the challenger banks is great what I love is you can hear in his voice that it's not a marketing ploy. There's something about the tonality and the feel of all of this that it's not a marketing ploy. And the and, and as Ross rightly said, I'm no doubt there are lots of people listening in banks right now who are going, we would love to be able to execute at that speed. But that was your point, Bill, about the speed at which they can execute this thing. You identify the right thing to do and it's in customers' hands. Another thing that stood out to me is we recorded that back in June. And do you notice you said 650,000 customers and they're now over a million? How quickly things have changed. No, there's, there's no question. But again, just think about how also an individual is able to do it. And they celebrate the individual. He walked in the code or the new service. You know, there's an agreement and away you go. Absolutely. All right. Uh, Got to move to the next story. Um, this one is uh, from The Telegraph and one heck of a headline. Um, Stalling is now the Amazon of banking. Come and get an account. Um, the article opens, Anne Bowden, founder of Starling Bank, is boarding a 92-foot yacht in the Bahamas to pitch to a secret billionaire, Harold McPike. And then it goes on to give an overview of their origin story and, and how she was able to get funding and sold them on this idea of building the Amazon of banking. And really what it's talking about is this is a bank with a marketplace. This is a bank with APIs. It's a very flashy headline, but is there some substance here? I, listen, I think it's early days, right? But I think the model's interesting where they start with financial services because it's something people care about, right? And then they move to kind of aggregation to give you a more complete picture. And then they move to marketplaces because they see that's where growth is going to come from, right? So what's interesting is this, this route that they've taken from this individualized kind of consumer service immediately where they understand scale is all about marketplaces. Agreed, I think. So I... um I caught up with our CTO, Ewan Silver, on this um, during the week to ask about, you know, what's the sort of basis behind this? And he said they've got the best APIs out there of anyone at the moment. So he said, actually, that really, apart from ClearBank, they're the only ones you could realistically build a, t- a bank on top of. So if anyone is acclaimed to be the AWS rather than Amazon, it's probably Starling. There's Solaris Bank as well, who I think deserve an honorable mention. But it, it's uh, there's, what's interesting here is 
They've proven it works with a banking license with 250,000 customers. The big problem for a lot of banking vendors or for doing anything has always been great. Um, everybody wants to be second to market. Who did it first? Mm-hmm. And so Anne can turn around and Starling can turn around and say, well, here's the live working regulated bank with 250,000 customers running in a real world marketplace and then sort of sell on that platform. I think not just to, uh, to other fintechs, but I think the much more interesting market for this is other banks. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I think my ob- other observation would be, um, I'm not sure anyone would really want to be the Amazon of banking given some <laughs> the negative press around that. So I find that a really interesting juxtaposition, um, given the previous conversation we've had about rehabilitating banks. So, um, I'm not sure how happy Starling would have been with that with that headline I, I might suggest that um when you're looking to raise funding no no publicity is bad publicity <laughs> indeed and uh I, I i'm kind of sick of this the uber of the amazon of trope but it gets headlines and it's worked and it was mainstream media once again for a challenger bank uh, i go back to the point that challenger banks aren't coming they're here you know like this is the moment yeah, there's no question. You mentioned uh, Solaris Bank and I'll declare visas an investor in Solaris. But it's funny, you know, they talk about bank as a service again, API first, you know, able to port their license. But to your point, you know, Starling said, we're actually going to prove that we can get customers first, that we have a customer or consumer relevancy, and then we'll move to bank as a service. And, and you're going to see these models pop up all over Europe. It was um, Tom Blomfeld um, on an episode we did uh, back in December towards the end of uh, 2017 uh, talked about that there's going to be two types of banks in the future. There's going to be um, platforms and marketplaces. And uh, it feels to me like stalling a sort of both in that they've got this marketplace that's sort of working, um, but they could potentially be a platform as well. Um, but really, it seems like that marketplace is what they're leading with. This is the place where you buy all of your financial products. And I think that's what's um, intended to be said. here. I think, yeah, the marketplace is priority. I think, as I understand it today, the sign-up process for third parties to get into the marketplace is probably still quite painful. I think they're looking at streamlining that, streamlining the API protocols, and then it's going to explode. That said, if you look at, um, we talked a couple of weeks ago about Facebook having all of their data issues from third parties using their APIs, there's a reason to be cautious. There's a reason to, especially when you're dealing with people's money and access to their bank account, like you want to make sure that if you're getting in there and you're getting in the banking app, there's, there's got to be some processes for that. Alrighty, next story. Um, funding circle shares plummet as they float. Um, well done, Laura, for that um, semi-headline. But the real headline from The Guardian is um, peer-to-peer lender funding circle shares plummet on float day. Share prices fell by a quarter on their first full day of trading. Um, the flotation valued the company at £1.5 billion sterling. Uh, but at the end of Wednesday, its market volume had fallen, value had fallen to £1.25 billion. The collapse wiped millions from the paper fortunes of companies three founders who own 17 percent of the firm um and the founders had originally hoped their collective states would be stakes would be worth 280 million but by the end of wednesday collectively they were only worth 213 million do you feel sad i feel sad i i feel a little bit worried i think you know obviously fintechs in general will have been watching this we haven't seen a huge amount exit um ipo is still a little bit 
worrying in this space um and the fact that this has happened i think it's a little bit worrying i don't know that i agree i mean adyen ipo'd this year and they their ipo they've they've seen a 90 percent rise since their ipo i mean that's incredible topping uh 15 billion in valuation there are reports of stripe now being worth a, a 20 billion valuation and of course probably the most famous is square um they their valuation halved after they IPO'd, and they've steadily worked their way back. A lot of this is more about how are people pricing their offering. Like, <laughs> yeah, I, I think you know, I think in the medium term markets are efficient, right? I think in the short term around IPOs, people can get caught up in the hype; they're over promoted. You know, right? The 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 media index is too high, and so we've seen it kind of go both. We've seen it go both ways. Like, who would want to be the IPO who launched yesterday? Right when the markets dropped 800 points, yeah. right. So much of this is kind of context, but I think in the medium term, you you left the square example. Look what happened in the medium term. Zoom out. Look what's happened in, to Facebook in the medium term after it dropped its first week of trading. Facebook I mean, is a really good example, right? So Facebook comes out at 38 dollars, drops to 15 dollars, and now what's it? 170 something, and and a trillion dollar company. So. You know, I, I think the markets become efficient over time, but you know, there's a bit of exuberance or maybe depression in the first week. Yeah, I think also this is a bit reminiscent of the dot com boom, and the markets are, you know, there is commentary in the markets that their shares and the indices are overpriced at the moment. So I think we might be starting to see some of that irrational exuberance, but the fact that it dropped so quickly after doesn't necessarily fit with that so it's quite an interesting but case tech stocks are getting beaten up generally in the market at the moment i mean you could argue they've been overvalued they've been on a 12 15 year tear away of almost unstoppable growth but uh, that said um we've got to put this in context but i think the broader point here is about the maturity of fintech like fintech still seems like it's a little ways off you know and, and it's i think it's finally made it to the top near the top five things on the agenda points for a, a bank exec um and this and the board of a bank but it's these these evidence points say look it's mature these businesses are large these businesses are big or as big if not bigger than many of the top 100 banks in the world this is significant stuff yeah but i also think just in the current context there's a little bit around just lending tech never mind fintech you know as as people perceive credit markets starting to tighten you know you read why people are thinking Square went down so much. It wasn't just the departure of their CFO. It's because, you know, their, their lending model that they've recently launched was exposed to potentially credit risk. Look at uh, lending tree, look at funding circle. I think lending tech as credit markets potentially become tighter. I really think zooming in from fintech into that lending space and the peer-to-peer lender who the peer-to-peer lenders really found their moment after the financial crisis when we were in a credit squeeze, when nobody was lending to small businesses. So if I was running a small business, there was nowhere else I could go. And for a long time, people have been saying, well, let's see how this does over the cycle. Um, and I think they, they have had a lot of problems. They One of them, I think, built their own um, hedge fund to buy their own debt from themselves and then sell it onto the market. Like You get yourself into this position where how do you how do you sell that book um it becomes really interesting yeah and the fca is consulting on peer-to-peer lending at the moment and so we're likely to see tightening up of risk management um requirements from the regulator here and that's due out next the policy paper is due out 
next spring so it'd be interesting to see what happens then yeah we'll have to do a reg tech special when that happens (laughs) um all right next story is one that really um got got me excited this week klana uh have teamed up with h&m the clothing store so um klana has raised uh 20 million dollars from h&m to and will build a financing and payment services for the fashion retailer Uh, so they're building an omnichannel payment service across both physical and online storefronts, which I think is interesting. Klarna says the deal will cover frictionless in-store, mobile and online payments across the company's whole footprint, a better delivery and return process, more flexible payment options, including try before you buy and pay later services to be delivered through H&M's app and its club loyalty program. Um, and the first phase of the partnership goes live in 2019. What I there's so much to unpick here, Ross. There um, is, um, uh, but Klarna is an interesting company. Remind people who Klarna are because they started in Scandinavia and solved yeah, a very specific problem there. Exactly. So Klarna are the Swedish kind of point of sale lending company, and they, they I suppose what they're about is giving you an additional payment option at the point of sale. So you would get to check out and you could use your card, you could use PayPal, and sometimes you may, might see the Klarna button. Yeah, I mean, typically it's positioned at, at checkout, a little um, pink pay with Klarna button. You know what, I mean, it, it works in the same way as, as Amazon insofar as you can also store your card details with Klarna. You, can, you don't have to choose one of their installment or their lending options. So they offer two distinct lending options, one which is kind of deferred payment, as you said, so buy now, pay later. Um, one is installment lending, so you can spread those payments over three, six, nine, or 12 months. Um, yeah, yeah, Klarna is a, f- a fascinating case. We're investors in Klarna as well, so I love this company. Um, and where it started was they recognized in Sweden that women would order clothes online, and they'd always order more than they planned to buy. And so there was a whole bunch of return risk, merchant risk, et cetera. And they started by basically standing in front of the merchant, dealing with the customer with the returns, fronting the merchant the money. And then out of that developed these, all these pay later options. But the thing about Klarna, and you know, I'm not surprised that, that they were, they were, where they were chosen is their relentless focus on that consumer experience. Absolutely. I'm, oh my goodness. I mean, they, they are really human centered design. What I love about this is they're solving the problem for the retailer by solving the problem for the consumer. And and this is some what often gets missed. Um, there's so many people that play in this space that solve the problem um, of the payment or the loan. And they say, and here are all of the options and the 15 different flavors you can have the loan in. And here's the training so that you can use the software to give the customer the loan. And here's how. And they, they, and then they they're sell not just price. reinventing the payment experience. They're, they're reinventing, reinventing the retail experience. That's the, they're not just reinventing the payment, they're reinventing retail. Once fintech starts solving problems for its customers' customers and that whole like end-to-end experience, like this piece about um, integrating to the app and the loyalty program, like you wouldn't that imagine a traditional bank doing that. Would that you? makes sense for me in the context of how they've grown so far in the UK market. So they've had incredible growth in uh, the Dutch region, that growth hasn't been sort of replicated in the UK or the US, which is interesting. I think it's a mindset thing. I think it's about how people think about credit in those markets. So embedding themselves further in with retailers and offering these sort of seamless straight through end to end journeys, that offers a really good chance of uh, of accelerating that growth. I'm going to be a wet blanket again. <laughs> Because I think the other the other side of credit is obviously debt. 
And we are seeing huge indebtedness as a becoming a real social and economic problem and making getting a loan so easy that you don't even really think about it, I think could be quite problematic. So what I like about these new tech companies that are playing in the lending space is how they're reinventing the, the credit risk assessment piece. They're, they're building their sort of these proprietary tech models that pull in hundreds of different data points and combine them in a way that offers a richer kind of risk profile so you look at someone like a firm in the u.s who've done exactly that they are accepting i think 126 percent more people than traditional banks you know even included in that people that traditional banks have traditionally considered subprime but their default rates are way below market average so what kind of interest rates will they be charging on those? So a firm have, I think, 0% um, promotional rates with, I think, 150 or so retailers. Beyond that, it's between 10 and 30% APR. Uh, so depending on credit card. Well, de- so it is, depending on um, your... Um, credit score, however they, however risky they um, deem you to be, but it's simple interest. It's not compounding interest, and they play back straight up front the dollar value rather than an right, APR and a representative. Let's drive example. into simple interest versus compounding interest because that's a really key point, and that's what catches people out on credit cards. Agreed, and and so yeah, exactly. So compounding interest, interest on interest over time, um, and and of course the other risk with credit cards is that you've always got the temptation to just make the minimum payment. So over time, you're paying back more. Whereas when they give you um, simple interest, if it's 10% on a $100 loan, you pay back um, £110 and that's it. They don't charge late repayment fees. They don't charge early repayment fees. So you know exactly what you pay and it's equal installments that go out every month. So that's not uniform across merchants. Some merchants do have these nasty tricks. There are some that we've come across in our research where they, you know, actually, as soon as you drop out of that repayment plan, then you're in trouble. So there's good and bad behavior in this space. But I think what stood out to me was like that solving problem for consumers and then the transparency that you see with the challenger banks, which is now table stakes. It's not marketing. It's not being a dick. <laughs> yeah. No, exactly. And and the thing is, I think there's a generational shift. I think, you know, it, it's it's societal in markets like Germany and, and the Nordics where Klarna is really strong because people think when you show a credit card that it means you're signaling you can't afford it. Yeah. But, but they like to have invoicing and all these pay later options. It's not that they don't like credit. It's just that the credit cards culturally mean something else. But I think just generally, you know, there's a generational shift where your life isn't going to be a revolving credit line. It's going to be a series of these mini loans with defined terms, with defined interest rates, with complete transparency. And you'll manage your life with like 20 or 30 loans and going on at a time. And you in control of those. 100%. And so if I need to oppose, if I need to um, pay over a longer term, I should be in control of being able to do that. And I think the marrying of what Klarna are doing with the types of control you get from a financial control center like a like a challenger bank the in between those two is going to be where things get really interesting and i know starling have a bit of a feature that help you split the cost of something yeah over so couple- starling's kind of more about post-financing so where you've made a purchase that's in excess of 500 pounds you've got an option when you drill into that transaction in the app to actually split that out, out over monthly payments but, but i really think the right place to capture that is at the point of sale and and to give people that that control there um but let's not talk about this anymore because Aoife Houlihan, who is the VP of Communications and Public Policy at Klarna, actually told us a lot more about how the partnership with H&M will work and what they're looking to achieve uh, to hit their goal of changing the face of retail, which I think is an interesting goal. We at Klarna have been talking with H&M for some time now, and um, this is really with regards to the H&M strategy, and it's a very big strategic priority for the company is the integration of the 
online and in-store uh, experiences. So classy, classic omnichannel um, situation, whereby the customer was often having quite different experiences um, and also the availability of different services within the different channels. So it is really to allow the customers to move freely between these uh, channels and actually experience and also to really, you know, uh, what we see now is the customer wants to shop in different ways. His expectations are changing. Their needs are changing. And we need to be there for the customer when they want. And like that is often being in the store, but being online at the same time. And at Klarna, what really has um, been a core focus for us and also in the discussions with H&M is not about falling in love with the product, but rather the solution and what are we solving for. And this is a tailor-made solution that we have come up with for H&M jointly and um, we see it as you know to drive this these experiences in store through the mobile through the H&M app and also through the H&M club loyalty and this really for us is the experiences now are a key differentiator and it's a key driver of loyalty and also for building customer engagement. We have been very much focused so far on how we bring a level of personalization to this. So, and this is about, you know, the customer, the the least level of friction, but also some degree of personalization and tailor-made towards the customer's previous shopping habits or their preferences, including its delivery or click and collect or, you know, how we manage returns within the app. And this is really looking at transactions as a service and solving for all the points of friction around the transaction and not just looking as at the payment as a single point in time, but more the beginning of a relationship with the customer. And for you know the, the exact product mix, which will be available to H&M customers in terms of the payment offering, will be confirmed closer to the time of the launch of the individual markets. But we do see Pay Later, um, which is a Klarna offering, as being core to this. And Pay Later was really developed with the bridge the delta between online and offline experiences. In store, a customer would simply take the clothes they would like, think they would like, bring them to the changing room, try them on and then decide. And that's obviously not possible online. And that's what we've tried to enable online with the try before you buy. So this service now is a key part of the H&M offering going forward and that is to try to bridge that delta between uh, the different channels and give customers the flexibility that they expect now. The relationship has been under discussion for quite some months and you know we've got to know each other very well and working together you know we really believe that this can be it will be a success. The launch will begin next year and the first markets to go live will be Sweden, Switzerland and the UK. But then further markets will go live um, in the second half of the year also. This really for Klarna is about entry of into new markets. There's five new markets which will be relevant for Klarna. A volume growth for us and also, you know, a huge new addressable market. And just a small point on the equity. This is really um, a commitment to the partnership. And, you know, this is very significant for both sides. And we really saw this as just, you know, being one element of the overall relationship. And while, you know, we we have many other retailers, uh, partners, 90,000 in total for Klarna, we do have other shareholders who are retailers, including the bestseller group. 
And this has worked very well for us. And we welcome that experience um, in our shareholder base, uh, which has been extremely beneficial for us in developing um, solutions going forward. What I like that is that they haven't focused on the investment so much. It's more of a partnership. Um, again, that partnership is, is really interesting. It's a win-win though, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, speaking of reinventing retail, Amazon Go. Um, so there's a story here from CNN Business. The headline goes, I spent 53 minutes in Amazon Go and saw the future of retail. There are no cashiers, no cash registers, or even self-service checkout stands. Let that one sink in. You simply walk in, grab what you need, and you go. Amazon bills your credit card as you pass through the turnstile on your way out. Moments later, an app in your phone provides a receipt detailing what you've bought, what you paid, even how long you spent inside, um, if you're an efficiency geek. Um, Amazon runs three stores, uh, three Go stores in its hometown of Seattle, another one in Chicago, and it plans to open others in New York, San Francisco, um, and many other places. Um, Amazon declined to comment, but they, they reckon there could be as many as 3,000 by 2021. Um, there was a report, I think, in Bloomberg. Although this is the creepy bit. Hundreds of cameras track your every move, keeping tabs on everything you put in your basket. The cameras create a three-dimensional representation of you. Amazon uses these images to know that it was you, not the person next to you who grabbed that bottle. Um, And Amazon says it keeps the data just long enough to provide you with an accurate receipt, although a small subset of the info might be retained to further train the algorithms to make sure that everything works. How do we feel about this? On the one hand, I love the idea of just being able to walk into a shop and walk out again. But on the other hand, the um, possible ramifications around that data, they they really scare me. So I, I wonder if this is like, is it really scary that your mobile network can tell where you are at all times and can track you and it knows your location? Or is it really handy that Uber can just turn up to where you are? Like, will consumers just go for the convenience here? Yeah, I mean, I think it's contextual. I mean, I love this experience when you're trying to buy 12 pounds worth of groceries on the way home. Yeah. Right. You don't want any human interaction. You want to get out of there. It's all about efficiency and and, and taking friction out. Um, you know, and think about it, especially in the UK here. How many CCTVs are watching my every move I in a retail environment, but not doing anyway. anything for me? They're just watching me, yeah. right? And not being deleted after I leave. Being deleted three weeks later when they get around to it. So, so yeah, you've hit the point that I was going to make, and I won't dwell on it too much because we spent a little bit of time talking about this last week. Simon is is the value exchange, right? So if, I mean, I'd go even further building you without wanting, you know, what you're saying about not wanting the human interaction in that. I get genuine anxiety if I have to actually go to a store and then there's like a queue and I have to wait and then the, I hate it. I'm just, I, I, maybe it's because I am the efficiency geek that you talked about. No, I think it's a national obsession that we will do it and we will observe the rules of the line. And if anybody cuts line, then that's it. That's not even it. We'll get really passively aggressive, angry within ourselves. Yeah, we won't tell them. them, We might shoot them an angry look. We will not tell them that they've they've done anything wrong. It's not like cutting line in any other country where somebody would say something. We'll just glare at them. And we don't call them lines. We call them cues. I'm doing this for the American listeners. 40% of our listeners are American. 40%? Yeah, 40%. How many are Canadian? That's a great question, and I will find out that answer and get back to you. Um, but Bob McLean is definitely listening. Shout out, Bob. All right, so uh, what I think about this one is that uh, there is that value exchange. There was, there's that story last week where the coffee shop gave away a free coffee in exchange for data. If you're being transparent with me, 
And if you're acting in my interests, like we talked about in the very first story around the gambling piece, if it's genuinely built in my interests by humans who are genuinely trying to provide value, this can be good. But you see both good and bad. And you could see how somebody could use the same tech, um, the same idea, and have it not be in your interests. So we just need to be mindful and watchful. All right. With that, it's time for a very quick break, and we shall be back shortly. I wonder if a robot will be driving us to work in the future. They say robots could become more intelligent than humans, which can only be a good thing, right? Stephen Hawking said the rise of robots could be disastrous for mankind. Well, I'm looking forward to robots doing the hard parts of my job. If they're smarter than you, they might kick you out of your job. Artificial intelligence. Innovation or invasion. Don't settle for black or white. For the full perspective, turn to the Financial Times. Visit ft.com forward slash subscribe today. Today, customers are demanding greater value from financial services. They expect more agility, innovation and security than ever before. Most financial institutions are held back by the shackles of closed legacy systems that limit transparency, block innovation and ignore customers' demands. Finastra has a bold vision to unlock the potential of people and business. They've created a platform for open innovation in the world of financial services with FusionFabric.cloud. Their solutions span retail, transaction lending, and treasury and capital markets on-premise and in the cloud. Start your transformation journey today with Finastra. Welcome back to Fintech Insider by 11FS, 2% Canadian listenership. Uh, Fintech Insider will be at Money 2020 in Las Vegas for you, 2%. Uh, we're proud to announce we'll be hosting not one, but two live shows from Money 2020 itself that you'll get to hear after the event. So if you're based in the US or you're just coming to Money 2020 and you want to watch the live shows, then tickets to Money 2020 are available now. If you use the code 11FS250, you'll save $250 from the usual ticket price. That's 11FS250. We'll see you there. On with the show. All right, the next story is uh, Ireland versus Google. I feel like this is in your wheelhouse here, Ross. Um, I don't, I don't the, really uh, like our chances. <laughs> <laughs> the Irish data regulator seeks information from Google on a security bug. Uh, so at least two US states and uh, two European member states are investigating a breach of Alphabet Inc.'s um, Google that may have exposed private profile data of at least 500,000 users to external developers. Uh, the investigations follow Google's announcement on Monday that it would shut down the consumer version of its social network, Google+. Does anybody remember Google+. Vaguely. Yeah. Um, and tighten its data sharing policies after a bug, um, potentially exposed user data that included names, email addresses, occupations, genders, and ages. Uh, on Tuesday, Ireland's data protection regulator said that it would seek more information from Google regarding the bleach. Br- breach <laughs> what have you done with that bleach google <laughs> where did you put it um and investigates if it breaches uh, gdpr um so uh, how do you feel about this Ross? um so nobody takes our bleach <laughs> we're we're <laughs> so protective of our bleach. william wallace we yeah, yeah, right yeah, yeah. Well, um so this is just every week now right you know, some big firm has a data breach. It's really worrying. Obviously, last week we spent a little bit of time talking about Facebook. I think what bothers me about this is is the 
the way they either communicate it or don't communicate it, I think in the context now of GDPR, um, they're quite good at actually communicating it, but they're not very good at telling us what happened or telling us what's going on. And we get a lot of like, oh, there was a glitch, there was a bug, there was, yeah, and it's, it doesn't tell us anything. We've had an issue anything. and we're investigating. Yeah. Stand yeah. by for news. <laughs> That's what bothers me. It's, it's the comms. Obviously, it's, it's the, lack the breach of transparency. Piece, but it's the and, lack and of we transparency. And we come to the point that like more transparency engenders trust. So why wouldn't I be more transparent? Unless the transparency is, oh shit, somebody messed up. The thing with this as well is general data protection regulation. So we actually had an episode on uh, all about GDPR on episode 220. So if you want to scroll back and learn all about the general data protection regulation, that was a really, really good insight show. Uh, and of course, uh, Dr. Xian, you can talk us through sort of what the fine levels are for the breaching GDPR because they're pretty significant. Was it what, um, whatever is the so higher? It's, um, 20 million or 4% of annual turnovers, whichever is larger. 4% of annual turnovers and for Google. Global turnover. Global turnover. Yeah. Wow. So- this could be really significant, but will Ireland really get there? Or is this going to be some kind of score draw where they get a little bit of money and Google says sorry and everybody goes back to what they were doing anyway? Well, in the in the article, it said the incident occurred before GDPR came into force. Oh. So they would, I think, they would really struggle to retrospectively apply the regulations. So you might, they might still bring them to to justice, but the fine will be much lower. Well, especially for big techs. I mean, you know, it starts in Ireland, or that's where it's reported, but it's going to get to Brussels soon enough. Right. And they've shown, you know, no reticence at all in terms of going after big tech with, with fines and multi billion dollar fines, usually on antitrust, but this gives them something else to go after them. This for. is a new playground. And, and, but what's interesting to me is that, uh, like, we've seen these and we've seen the Facebook ones and we've seen a few others. Like the next time an Equifax or a Target or a Sony happens, will they get the same vehement uh, kind of response from the European uh, kind of authorities around this stuff? Because it feels to me a little bit like it's um, it's political when they go after big tech. It's trying to grab tax revenues. This is my own personal opinion. But like it, it's interesting how it's always those guys but not the incumbents who probably should also get their house in order that seems to get these. Maybe that's just perspective Maybe that's just the headlines. Maybe I'm missing something. Caveat, caveat, caveat. But it just seems like they, they really enjoy holding the big tech in front of, um, you know, for the theater at the moment for point scoring rather than actually solving the underlying issue, which is stop breaching data, people. Yeah, I mean, I, I worry that um, the scale of this has been, you know, obviously huge, but really for a long time. I think we're hearing about it now week on week because you've got, what, 72 hours, I think, under GDPR regulation to to actually announce it. Um, which is a good thing. Like, let's which have is more a great thing, but it, it doesn't need to go further in that just telling us about it probably isn't enough. What are you doing to actually protect us? Why do we think it's so hard to do good practice when there's good... Do people just not know? Um, or is it that there's something embarrassing that could really impact them? Like... I'm genuinely baffled because my MO is to just be radically transparent on things. And generally, it seems to a lot of people think Simon's daft and being silly. But otherwise, you know, it's kind of it's kind of honest, at least. And I think that's a good MO for a company to have, which is it will engender trust. And if you're doing genuinely doing your best to fix an issue and you've got talented, smart people working to get that done, then what's the problem? I think with companies like Google and Facebook, they're probably isn't a huge amount of trust because they are fairly opaque um, in terms of how they're using our data. They say it's all in the terms and conditions, but really... Who's read it? Who's read it? Um, and I think it's that opacity which 
I think probably upsets the the regulators as well. You know, transparency is great, but it actually needs to be transparent. But but this is supposed to be another yeah. part of GDPR, right? It's pulling those salient yeah. points from these massive monolithic TNCs documents up front so that people can actually understand at a glance what they're signing up for i haven't seen any of that but, it's, but this is the point about some of the things we were saying earlier really good transparent communications is good for business it's good for sales it helps you acquire customers at a lower cost this isn't about like uh if you just try and make things really uh hard to see and hard to understand and play hide the ball you'll make more money the opposite is true stop doing that like anyway yeah, um, I, I agree i just the only wrench i want to throw in here is particularly if there's commerce involved, and we, we see a lot of this, there's a lot of causes that are due to some pretty big state actors mm-hmm. that, that do this for a living. Sure. Right? And so I completely agree in terms of reporting transparency that it's happened and, and, and being very transparent about the effects of the consumer, um, getting to the bottom of how these things happen and the players involved and, and the murkiness, it, it gets interesting. But there's saying that something happened and then there's giving the lurid, juicy details. Like, there is a hack happened, we're investigating it, sorry, this is what we're going to do about it, this is going to be the process, like... I don't know. Maybe I need to look closer at this than they did that, but I don't think they did. And that's not, not the impression it's getting from, from the articles about it and from, uh, from what people have said. Look, gotta move us on because, um, I, I gotta get off this hobby horse at some point. Um, and speaking of things that come up every week, the weekly Brexit story is here. Uh, apparently nine billion pounds has been pulled from UK company funds since the Brexit vote. And the figures come from the investment association. Retail investors have pulled large sums from UK funds on a monthly basis since the vote. The figures for August 2018 also show the first net loss of investment on aggregate across all funds available for sale in the UK since the referendum, including those invested overseas. Investors pulled £217 million from UK authorised funds over the month, and funds invested in UK companies are the most unpopular among investors in August, registering withdrawals of £429 million. While funds buying European shares lost £303 million, there could be some of this that's market-driven, um, but it does seem disproportionately to affect the UK. I think that's an interesting point. Yeah, I think, I mean, the big thing about Brexit, amongst many other things, is the uncertainty. And markets do not like uncertainty. Retail investors in particular do not like uncertainty because they want their, they want to know their money's safe. I think the other thing to factor in here is after the Brexit vote, actually, because the pound fell, the shares rose and it may be that people are getting out at the top yeah there's an equilibrium here like not everything is is just purely um kind of motivated by the oh everything's going to be crap in the future it's just now's good really good economic timing but i do think there's something between the uh, keep calm and carry on but also take my money out in the back so you know <laughs> that's kind of go there's something interesting there and yes currency will probably play a big part of it um, but bringing this back to fintech ross i mean um we're at a point where uk fintechs are ipoing we're at a point of maturity um we're at a point where the market Markets have just taken a, a sudden downturn. Where, where's this going to lead? And, and what does it mean for an entrepreneur who's trying to build a company right now? It's a really interesting question. Um, I think so, you know, I, I think I've said in the, on, the, on the podcast before with sort of great difficulty does come great opportunity. And, and, and the entrepreneurial, I know. Did you, did Spider-Man. Spider-Man. 
Yeah. <laughs> right? I thought that was Aristotle or someone. <laughs> yeah. No, but I mean, so I, I think my point is in, in challenging economic times, entrepreneurs are the ones who will typically find the space to do something awesome. They'll solve specific problems. That so when companies sit are born, that. creative Absolutely. destruction. Creative destru- destruction. And now, I agree with that. And I guess the question I'd have for you guys as you watch these trends and it's the, it's the drip feed on property prices. It's now the drip feed on companies that have decided to relocate headquarters and then, and now this in terms of investment. You know, we look at fintech hubs like Berlin or Tel Aviv or Stockholm Paris. Or, or Paris or London and new ones emerging, right? Are we, are you guys actively seeing UK based companies, you know, start to either push employees in different directions or push their investments or headquarters? Is that happening? So it depends on on the bank side. You're seeing them push out Euro clearing. That was the first one to go, and, and typically the sales side, not the operation side. On the fintech side, they're hedging by setting up operations, actually a lot in Luxembourg, because Luxembourg gives you a great financial services district to passport out of. Um, and then a lot of their tech teams will either be in Eastern Europe or based here in London, and they'll have a business team here. And the real drip, drip, drip is will that continue? Because I think the hedging has happened, but what happens next is anybody's guess. Uh, and I sense for companies that are already here they're probably going to stay here the ones that are going to be built tomorrow where would you build them yeah i i think the one the one question i'd, I'd like to raise as well is is what's the the sort of maybe the, the the more medium or longer term impact on vc funding and what we've seen from fintechs you know in the uk is that they've tended to prioritize scale so growing out their customer base over profitability and, and what's the implication going to be on that model well, a lot for of growth? The vc community that was really strong in the early stage of fintech uh, were, were taking money from eif the european investment fund so the money was actually coming from europe that then <laughs> the uk did a great job of taking credit for uh, having created fintech and to be fair from a policy perspective it did do a good job um, but actually a lot of the money didn't come from the the UK it came from the UK exchequer it came from Europe so it'll be interesting I was going to make the point about the political support for fintech being a huge hedge against Brexit anyway um, and you can see that in terms of the, the way the regulators getting behind it and and so on so I'm I, not sure if it will has work. enough momentum to kind of survive and if it doesn't then uh, the, you know there's a, there's an agglomeration of talent now and there is a buzz and a real feeling about London and the stars are coming out I think great companies will be built and will do whatever they need to do in spite of economic conditions and, and in and around it the entrepreneurs were born walking through walls I think it, that will continue um, the bigger concern is the rest of the economy and the human cost on on everybody else that's that's more my concern um, but fear not there is robo advice for a price Oh, Laura nailed that one. I can see Laura's producer, Laura. Just just well done. Um, story comes from an extra. If you've got £20 a month to spare, Santander has the robo-advisor just for you. Their digital investment advisor, the DIA. Um, I'm, Already sounds sexy and accessible, doesn't it? <laughs> Something about that. Just Although, do they come with a badge and say CIA? I yeah. hope so. Uh, I would really. They guide people through a straightforward set of questions about their current financial position, what you want to achieve, and assess your level of risk that you're prepared to take with money. Customers can select long-term goals. And <laughs> <laughs> so it's a robo advisor. I pay twenty pounds a month for. I feel like this is a real me too, and that a they're bit. doing it because they feel they have to have a robo advisor rather than because it's going to be a big revenue stream or make them a lot of money. That's my sense. Um, because 
what's the point, really? Yeah, I think it's part of their millennial strategy. And, and you know, all of these big banks are somehow trying to replicate what they see around, whether it's account aggregation or financial advice or transactional credit or travel accounts, because that's all the models we're seeing. Robo-advising should be no surprise. Now, the way I read it was it's 20 pounds once, and then you have to have a minimum of 20 pounds to invest. Correct. So, you know, I, hopefully that's appealing kind of to the millennials post yeah, to get and, them and started. I get it. So we saw Chase did the, um, I think the, I don't know how much, how many dollars per month it was, and it was an all-you-can-eat uh, trading product. Uh, Robinhood has the similar model where it's n dollars per month, and you can do all-you-can-eat uh, sort of trading on that side. I think there is something about the flat subscription for all you can do is a very different model rather than the fees taken off of the uh, off of the kind of the the management fee side. So there's something to be said for that, but I'm just not seeing like why this is special. I mean, I get it. Democratizing investing is good, but this just but feels these like these guys didn't democratize it. Yeah, no, they didn't. They... Robinhood democratized it. Nutmeg democratized it. Wealthsimple democratized it. These are the guys that they democratized it from. And to Sean's point, it's a complete me too proposition. It's completely cynical. And then they're just charging you a flat fee on top of it to boot. I hate it. <laughs> Say what you really mean. <laughs> now, see, to respect for trying to do the thing, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try and advocate for this now. I'm going to try and take the position of buttering up an incumbent. But there's something about uh, wealth that really interests me as a subject. There's something about you can't get young people addicted to saving. There's a real uh, the, the uh, kind of inequality of incomes. The wealth disparity is between young and old as much as anything. Um, and lifestyles have changed, but there's a real financial literacy problem. Um, so the research by Santander estimated that, um, uh, so they did uh, 2,000 UK adults, 1.8 million savers wanting to invest for the first time with £450 million in spare cash they're willing to invest um, at an average of 247 pounds each so there's latent demand in the market but to me it's not provide me a robo advisor it's understand me and fit into my life and educate me and there's a really great newsletter by the guys at finimize um cb insights those sorts of types of communication communicating with customers in a different way would be to me what i'd want to see them lead with rather than we're going to do a robo advisor and this is how much it's going to cost however Maybe, again, this is me reading what the uh, reporter has reported rather than what Santander wanted to do. So to their credit, they could have all of those things in train. They could be doing this really, really well. And I just can't see it because it's hard to get these things through the news media. Having spent some time today trying to do some market sizing, I'm a bit perplexed by their figures, which is among 2,000 UK adults, they've managed to extrapolate from that that there are 1.8 million savers wanting to invest for the first time, or SWIFTs. Um, those figures seem bizarre to me, um, but without seeing the underlying data, can't really tell. I, well, I think there's a trend here. So I think, um, you know, the demographic that they're going after, um, they have more money to save now or to invest because they realize that actually they're not going to own a house or they're at least not going to own a house for a long time they have that not disposable cash but they have cash that otherwise would have gone into an asset that now they're saying all right well how do i get more for it especially in the context of really low um interest, interest rate. rates etc but well, this, of course we saw in the last couple of weeks marcus came out with the yeah. 1.5 percent saving rate and um the, i think this sort of solving this gap of there's no way to really put my cash and there's nothing to do with it it, there's massive demand there. So credit to them for going to where there's demand. Kind of strange 
the positioning of this and how it's come out in the Finextra article. Well, what's interesting for me is, you know, we're seeing all these big banks, as I said, try to look like neobanks and, and move quicker, but they seem to all do it. And, and Santander is better than most, but they seem to all do it in a big bank way. Even in the reporting or the way they describe it, they're not talking about the consumer experience. It's here's the product features. It's like when that's they, what you get from a bank all the time. Here's go. the product features. It's like, it's like when they talk about their um, huge five-year digital transformation strategies and they just tell you how much they're going to spend. spend. Because they want to get vendors excited, not customers. There's a there's the line of the show, uh, getting vendors excited, not customers. I mean, th- that's the problem with the way they're doing this press. And and I think this is uh, the Finextra press is speaking to their shareholders. It's not speaking to customers. So you can see why they might have done that. Uh, but also, I'd love to see something that was customer led and re- and you know how many times I've heard executives at banks um, and other large institutions say, well, "Let's be customer led. Let's be customer centric." And it's kind of like, yeah, if you keep saying it. It's not the same as doing it. It's like, yeah, let, I'm going to be great at sports. And it's like, if I keep saying it, then I might be it. It's like, no, you got to practice it. you got to do it. There's a, there's a difference here. Um, but speaking of people who've gone out and done it, um, there is a new venture out there from the creator of Simple Bank. So uh, this comes from a Medium blog post announcing Scylla, S-I-L-A. I'm thinking Scylla Black. Any, I am as any, well. of, any of the UK listeners, that probably doesn't translate for the US. If you're in the US or anywhere else in the world and you don't know who Scylla Black is, Google it. Um, Shamir Karkul, the co-founder of Simple, is the CEO of a newly created Scylla, whose mission is to empower developers by providing open source infrastructure for the fintech companies of tomorrow. That's the first thing that comes out of this story is a really clear mission statement. Contrast that with the previous story. Anyway... What they are, they're an API platform with a suite of developer tools supported by a new regulatory compliant fiat-backed tokenized means of exchange, the Scylla token, that allows developers to rapidly build fintech applications and bring them out to the market. So they've actually pegged this um, token, their Scylla token, to the US dollar via a centralized 100% reserve held in US dollar-backed instruments. So in other words, there's a bank somewhere with US dollars. I can buy these token things and probably use them on their platform, and this is how they're raising money instead of going to a VC. Um, it forms the basis of an API platform that will enable fast regulatory compliant payments. So like... Rails Bank meets a token sale. Is that what everybody else? Yeah. Okay. Um, so the co-founder, um, Shamir Kaku, who's the co- was the co-founder of Simple Bank, uh, actually gave us an interview a couple of weeks ago ahead of the launch of Scylla on episode 254. Um, and apparently, um, Scylla, um, is named after Scylla, who was the first token created in 3000 BC by the Sumerians, which began with a small ball used to measure the standardized volume of barley. Interesting reasons people play names. Anyway, thoughts on this one. Firstly, APIs, good? Required. Yeah. Table stakes. Yeah. Tokens. Required. Mm, bit skeptical. But the 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 fiat back token makes it very different to being uh, a cryptocurrency. Because it eliminates or gets rid of that speculative yeah, element, exactly, right? Exactly, exactly. Um, I just wonder how they define regulatory compliant as well, given that there's very little um, consensus still about how to regulate tokens yep. and, and crypto assets in general. So that that would be interesting to dig into that a little bit more. Um, in principle, I think it sounds great. 
What you're seeing is um, a lot more people issuing tokens using the Reg D or Reg S uh, SEC securities law. So typically you see the paperwork around a securities uh, issuance and offering uh, that looks like you might as well be issuing shares. You just happen to be using a platform that's digital to do it. The interesting thing about that is those shares can convert into something else in the future. So you could use those shares and you can say, actually, I'm going to use those shares and I'm actually going to spend on your platform. Or So you get this other... And then the cost of issuing those shares, the difficulty managing those shares in terms of where has the piece of paper with all of my shares gone? Um, All of that goes away because as you're probably more than well aware, losing a piece of paper is one of the big issues um, in the world economy. So that's actually quite quite a nice solve. So if they're doing that, then that makes sense. And look, Shamir has a track record. He sold, he was one of the people that helped uh, sell um, uh, simple to BBVA. He's a veteran then of working in a regulated bank. Um, so there's there's a lot going on here. And uh, it's going to be interesting to see, like, we hadn't really seen the uh, kind of API marketplace thing really done, I think, in the US. You'd seen Stripe were very driven towards the payments piece, but you hadn't seen, these guys are doing ID verification, account linking, um, but you can also then issue these tokens, redeem them, and transfer them. So I'm, I'm interested as to you know, what his take on the crypto side is. Yeah, and I'm also interested in terms of how we, how these tokens and how this these APIs connect to kind of the the the, the physical or cloud or fiat infrastructure. Sure, right. It feels to me like he's he's kind of started out by solving all of the things. Uh, so there's a statement here in the blog. One of the biggest impediments to unleashing creativity and developing new business models in finance is the absence of open access platforms for money yeah. and identity. And to be fair, there isn't like an email of money and there isn't an email of identity. Like a really clear way for that to work would be amazing, but it's really, really ambitious. So credit to him for taking on all of this. So there's a lot of people, uh, if you listen to Blockchain Insider, uh, which is available on iTunes now, that are trying to do <laughs> this stuff. But de- like de-risking it from a developer perspective mm-hmm. is is as good a way to sort of drive innovation in those areas as any, right? Yeah, I would say so. Um, I mean, if you could do Stripe.com for the email of money rather than Stripe.com over traditional payments rails, sorry, Bill, um, then you would be in a really interesting place. You uh, would. So, sorry, Bill. Don't we do the email for money? Isn't that what we do? Stunned silence. All righty, let's get to our unfinally story. <laughs> Moderator privileges. <laughs> I just lost the line of the show. How did that happen? <laughs> uh, the unfinally story comes from Reuters, uh, and apparently, in a top hat and tails, Spanish debt agents prosper. Um, so, the, there's the name of a company which I'm not going to try and pronounce. Is anybody good at Spanish? El cobrador del frac. <laughs> Apparently specializes in sending men dressed like extras from 1930s Fred Astaire movies to humiliate debtors into paying up. And its business is booming. Uh, Its offices are full of men in dark suits. Uh, Female debt collectors are not employed by the company because they're deemed not imposing enough. I'm going to show them a picture of Ronda Rousey because she would knock lumps out of any human. Um, And the wall's studded with hunting trophies. Um, Together with a significant uh, collection of antlers, a pair of elephant tusks, there are two lion heads as well as a hyena and an antelope uh, <laughs> looking truly well and truly beaten as the most crushed debtors um with spain's economy on the edge of recession and a property bubble uh the they expect a bonanza in coming years um we love this story 
We really, really loved this story. Finding and finally stories, as producer Laura will tell you, is really, really hard. Until we realised it was in 2008 and published 10 years ago. Was this really a thing? I think it was a thing. And, and actually, I think once you move past the, the comic value, actually, it's it's pretty disgusting. Oh, absolutely. I mean, there's enough stigma associated with being in debt without frightening people. I mean, how different is this to the bailiffs that come knocking on your door demanding your property? It's- no, but, the, but that's it. And, and, and so there was a story in here. I mean, that reading this article for me was like, I... I, I hated reading every sentence but i couldn't pull myself away there was a story in here about um a couple who hadn't paid for their wedding banquet so the debt collectors phoned individually every single one of the guests that came to the wedding to ask them to pay for their share and finally then the 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 couple were able to get the, the funds together and, and pay for it so it's about it's it, the, the, the whole thing is about embarrassing people into paying for their debt and it's not something that you can do in the uk because Britain's Office of Fair Trading describes acting in a way likely to be publicly embarrassing to the debtor as unfair practice. Um, so that even failing to conceal debt notices and envelopes could be embarrassing if neighbours saw them. To be fair, I think they only embarrassed themselves in this story. Uh, I mean, like the, one of the reasons we found this so funny is that they have n- they're just completely lacking in self awareness of how stupid they come across. Um, and and t- to the to the point really about uh, the the kind of the the, the real human cost. Um, I think it, debt collection and generally dealing with that is is a massively sensitive issue when dealing with mental health and dealing with those challenges and far far more to see things where you're rehabilitating people and when you're using data to enable people to do that from a reg tech standpoint. Yeah, and actually the FCA is is really focused. Um the reg tech team are really focused on money and mental health and they're looking next year into how reg tech can help solve that. So that's something else to watch out for next year. Let's look out for that. All right. Well, that wraps up this week's show. Oh, don't say that. It, it's, it's over already. It's, it's been fast... so fun. It's been... <laughs> we've only got, we've only got 56 minutes on the iPad. <laughs> it's okay. Um, that's a good running time. That's it. We try and stay under an hour. Uh, we get complaints if we go longer than an hour, Ross. You know it. I know. <laughs> I know. But you're set to go anyway, I, um... aren't you? You can hug the microphone, then it's like you're hugging the listeners. <laughs> <laughs> You should see his face. <laughs> I'm so sorry, everyone. <laughs> You're apologizing. Oh, no, I feel bad. Um, on that note, that wraps up this week's show. Um, so we'd like to thank our guests very, very much. Where can people find out more about you, Bill? Um, yeah, again, I work for Visa up in Paddington on LinkedIn. Bill Gata, look me up. Lock him up. Or, I like or, that. Or email Bill Money. the email of money bill um and sean how about your good self find me on twitter at the reg doctor or uh reg tech associates which is rtassociates.co brilliant uh what about yourself so um yeah ross gallagher 07 at twitter or please do shoot me an email at rossgirl11fs.com rossgirl and for me you can find me at sytaylor on twitter or simon11fs.com uh, and you can join the discussion on fintechinsidernews.com or you can tweet us at fintechinsiders and watch out for some epic epic stuff coming up as we go into money 2020 um, and remember to subscribe so you never miss an episode or my uh, wild random rants about uh, ross hugging microphones um it really makes our weeks it does uh, it really does not me making random rants but you subscribing no uh, i'd argue that you making random rants definitely tends to make my week i feel like you're laughing at me not with me i could only ever laugh with you <laughs> uh and leave us a review thank you very much for listening goodbye <laughs>